episode 59. I said that with a question because I, I wasn't it's sure. No, it's 59. What's 58? Last week? Oh, I don't know. Am I wrong? I thought, let me check my, I got to look at the um, playlist. That's how I keep track. Episode 58. Yeah. So anyways, I don't really have any news or anything at the moment. Like this is a a Wednesday and not really much has gone on. Oh, Bob Barker died. Do you see that? Yeah, I saw that. And to be honest, I, I thought he was already dead. I think we were we talking about that like a week or two ago. Maybe. Did Maybe you kill I was, Bob Barker? Or talking, talking about him? I might have been talking about it with um, Buse, but nah, you were talking with Buse because I don't remember talking about Bob. Well, anyway, now he's dead, and I apologize. Way to go! He almost made it to a hundred, though. Yeah. And Betty White almost made it to a hundred. Bob almost made it to a hundred. Who's uh fucking? We'll give it Sylvester Stallone will make it to a hundred. He's got like. Close to thirty years still. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> maybe Willie. Willie'd be the Willie's got to be up there now. Yeah. I think who else would be super like Tony Bennett's dead. I don't know. It's gonna. It's hard to say. Smokey Robinson's probably pretty up there. But he's only like in his eighties. Yeah, and he looks he's in good shape. He yeah. looks like he's thirty-five years old still. It's them teeth. Yep. Um, the dying fetus episode that we're said we were going to be doing we're going to be doing it next week because i fucked up my release dates i almost sold it too early actually so i was like oh it comes out next friday i was thinking of like something else that came out that week so it's easy to confuse me you all that stuff coming out every week represses of shit that keeps coming out i noticed a lot of um restock at the store for you know fairly popular stuff I had to. We oh, were, I we were like, love it. We were like completely out of doors and um, just shit like that. Pantera, yeah. Slayer, all that common stuff that sells that everybody wants that we can't fucking keep in because everybody buys it, which I'm not complaining. Like, buy it up. Buy it up. Come buy more. I'll keep stocking it. You keep buying it. But anyway, on the podcast today, we have a special guest with us by the name of Andrew Thorpe King, who you may know from Thorpe Records or Sailor's Grave Records. Um, He's worked with tons of different bands like Blood for Blood, uh, Madball, uh, The Coffin Cats, Goddamn Gallows, uh, Creepshow, Sheer Terror, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot. Yeah, I think it... Collectively, between the two labels, I think he said he signed about 100 bands. Yeah, yeah, I would say. And then he's got his hands in multiple things, from cigars to clothing lines to finance banking, um, and then recently wrote a book by the title of Failure Rules, The Five Steps to, is it Accepting Failure? Yeah, The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creatives, and Authentics. I'm about halfway through it. And it's a very inspiring book. There's a lot of good quotes in there. We had a great time interviewing Mr. Thorpe King. You see, I get confused because he's, an and- he's Andy Thorpe or is he Andy Thorpe King? I didn't ask him. Um, when we listened to Hoya's podcast, I think he added the King like later, he, later on or something. Because Hoya said he knew him by Andy Thorpe. That's why I think I didn't put that together right at the beginning. Yeah, 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 because when you brought it up to me, I was like, "King, who's that? 
And then I looked into it, and I was like, oh, shit, he's that guy. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah it's funny. But we uh, had a great time interviewing him, man. Yeah, he's a very cool dude. And um, definitely, if you're a reader, which if you've listened to uh, any previous podcast episode we've done, you know that Jeremy and I both read quite a bit. We even did an episode on reading. And we strongly encourage you to read. Definitely check out his book. Uh, you can buy it anywhere books are sold, and he will tell you himself as well. And I'll have links to purchase in the episode description. Um, his social links will be in the episode description. The playlist that goes along with the book, well, that was stuff that like he was kind of listening to. Or inspiration. Listening to. That'll be in the episode description. So definitely check that out. Go give him a follow, and if you so choose, um, pick up the book. You can buy it in audiobook form or physical book. But unless you have anything else, Jeremy, I'm going to jump into... Let's get to the episode. Super fucking... I'm super pumped that you uh, wanted to do this, dude. You're kind of like, to us, man, from owning those labels, it's kind of cool, you know, to be uh, talking to you. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. Fucking Thorpe Records so 20 years ago. That was fucking tough as shit. <laughs> yeah, it certainly had its aesthetic. I mean, there were some deviations at certain points, but uh, mostly it kept within its lane. Oh, sure. yeah, dude. I just never uh, imagined I'd be fucking talking to you about about uh, life and shit, <laughs> so it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, man. Let's do it. So just for reference, uh, I'm Ryan. That's Jeremy. Yeah, I'm Jeremy. We're not in Canada. Right. <laughs> I'm trying to match the voices with the icons and the names here. Yeah. Did you say you're not in Canada? Not in Canada. Well, because everybody thinks that we... Uh, oh, because the LP the so far and, up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're in, like, way northern yeah, Michigan. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. So where are you? Um, If you put your hand up like a mitten, so it looks like Michigan, mm-hmm. your index finger, mm-hmm. we're almost all the way to the top of that. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I used to be, uh, I used to live in, um, Northwest Ohio near Southeast Michigan. That was, uh, when you were working for Lumberjack? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh, we, yeah. I, we did a, just a little bit of homework, but <laughs> not a lot. I always do my homework. Yeah, well. Shit. I spent a lot of lunch money at Lumberjack. So, uh, <laughs> why don't you start off by telling us about yourself? Like where'd you grow up and whatnot? Yeah, so Delaware County, they call it Delco. It's a suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, Delco kind of has its own unique kind of style, accent, working class kind of grit to it. Um, you know, it's um, probably even declined a little bit over the years in, in some of the, uh, you know, some of the parts of Delco. But, you know, you see it represented in like um, the like the TV show Mayor of Easttown that was on HBO oh, a couple of years back that I'll talk about Delco. Really? Yeah, so that whole accent there and all the different nuances there, that that that's Delco. That's where I'm from. And that's where I've returned to after living in the Midwest for about uh, seven years when I was uh, working at Lumberjack, running Thorpe Records and Sailor's Grave Records full-time for a couple of years after my Lumberjack tenure. And then uh, when I had some trouble and turbulence trying to stay afloat in the music industry full-time and, and, and then uh, kind of reinvented myself in banking and finance while still maintaining some sort of, you know, touch with music in the background. Well, definitely. Got to have, like, that hardcore connection. Yeah, well, it fuses everything I do, man. I mean, even now, I'm, I'm approaching my 10th year as an executive fintech banker. 
working in the payment space. So working with like a lot of innovative companies like you know, PayPal or Chime or you know, Venmo or those type of companies, helping them with innovative ways to, to move money and working in the corporate world. And at the same time, right, like I still like, I have this animating spirit within me that is informed by like hardcore. It's informed by like the energy of hardcore, like the ability to overcome obstacles and figure out problems, to keep going, to persevere. Yeah, I was gonna uh, say to like perseverance. Like, physical presence that I do, like it's it's still like part of what I who I am, no matter what realm I'm playing in in life. Definitely, definitely, man, I hear you there. So, wait, before you ask that, I have a question related to banking. So I hear people all the time, mm-hmm that are like, hey, there's gonna be no cash soon. And since you're in the business of finding new ways to pay for things, what do you think? Do you think that cash is going to be non-existent in the near future or no? I don't know, I mean, it's moving in that direction, right? Where there, there, there's the, the persistent nudge both in, this, in, in, in America and, and globally to you know, kind of de-emphasize cash, to make it harder to use, to make it even frowned upon. And I think with the push for the CBDC, the central bank digital currency and other digital currency schemes, like it's going in the other direction of cash like, and it's going away from fee-less transactions. Yeah. So like, is it going to go away fully? I don't know, but they're, they're trying to erode it as quickly as possible. And when I say they, I mean, that's they. a very, very large, undefinable they, yeah, like yeah. just I all the powers that be global of that recently i went to uh walls of jericho show a couple weeks ago i don't do shit because i have a 16 year old i just work do this podcast yeah. and try to get out when i can so i just withdrew some cash out of the atm so you know you might get a shirt a hoodie whatever and mm-hmm. when i went to pay for it they're like oh shit you have cash and i was like oh i am like that fucking old like really <laughs> and like i was the only one that had cash it was just fucking blew me away yeah, I mean, back in the day, like hardcore was like it was all cash, you know. Yeah, like, like yeah, any show you go to, especially like smaller ones, right? Like big right, ones, obviously, right. it's different. You buy a ticket, tickets. But yeah, that was just like. But wow. yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a mind blower, right? Oh, how, for how quickly, sure. or just how distinctly, like the cash usage is, is eroding. Oh, I yeah, mean, I was at this sure. is hardcore. It had a booth selling the book and some arts, and like, you know, had to get Square set up take to take card payments, which which was cool. But it's just interesting that that was mostly the option that people have. Like they're they're just not carrying cash. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's they, they I, can I, steer us that way by saying we don't accept cash. I mean, like, right? Mm-hmm. That's all you got to do. So we do this podcast in the back of my record store, and um, I would say sixty-five, seventy percent of our sales in a year are on card. Definitely. I would say that's low. That if you're getting thirty percent cash, that's actually pretty high. For yeah. cash. Well, that's well, because of where we're at, at, I think. Yeah, where we're at is uh, slightly the time, the city that time forgot sort of thing. There's yeah. a, a lot of old Understood. school people here still. It's a retirement community. Yeah. Or yeah. like a, a place that well, you I think got that's stuck. Too, right? so you talk about retirement community. I think it's like for those that are 40 and under. I mean, I'm, I'm older than that. And I mostly use plastic, but I carry cash too. I use cash for you know a small percentage of my spend. Um, but for those that are older, like, you know, they still have that connection to cash. And it's a shame that that's eroding because the convenience of using digital payments is, you know, unfortunately, I think, negated by the risk of giving up anonymity, of giving up, you know, visibility into your life 
which is ultimately what's going to happen. I mean, uh, I think it's probably unless something stops it or mitigates the the, uh, the movement toward it. I mean, at some point. Yeah, dude. All right. <laughs> that was, go ahead and ask what you were going to ask oh, before I interrupted now. you, Jeremy. Oh, it's cool. I was just. I just I need, I had somebody in the position to oh, ask. You're good. So I needed to ask. Yeah, and just to wrap that up topic up before we move on, I would say if it comes to that, I'd be I'd be inclined to be more like Dennis Leary and Demolition Man and live at the fucking sewer. And try yeah, to hell yeah, dude. <laughs> fucking yeah, rat burgers, bro. Yep. That's right. <laughs> so I got about halfway through your book, and I love the fucking quotes that you put in before every chapter, every little segue into the next thing from all these different people. It's quite inspiring, you know? I thought that was a very good idea. Yeah. Any in particular oh, strike yeah. your I like, your reading? There's a I like my favorite one is don't be the best, be the only. Mm. I love that, dude. Nice. Because I mean, I guess when I uh when I read that, it made me think, you know. And you're and it's a a right term. Just always somebody's yeah. going to be better, but if you can do something that nobody else can do, you're fucking golden. At least that's how I take it. Yeah, it's it's being the only of a category versus competing to be the best of a of a category. I mean, Peter Thiel for writes about that and from zero to one, uh, and um, really that comes from my friend Srinivas Rao, who wrote the book "Only Is Better Than Best." Okay, um, he's become a friend of mine. I've gone on his podcast, and his book was one of the books that inspired me to write Failure Rules, and that was the name of one of his books, man. And it's just, I think it's 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 key to differentiate that, right? Like. Uh, you want to find a way to exalt your most unique, you know, talents and attributes and personality traits so that you become, you know, that, that one of one. Yeah, that definitely. Limited edition. That kind of steered my, my way of my approach, I suppose, to my ultimate goal. So it kind of tweaked it, you know what I mean? Thinking that way. And uh, I just, yeah, I wrote it down on my fucking dry erase board at home. I fucking look at it every day now. I'm like I'm on a real PMA kick like the last year. I've been like super like going that way where I don't like using the word can't mm. or being negative. You know, I just got in an argument with my wife this morning while taking my kid to school or while he was going to school because I was off today. And um, she said something about, well, you can't. And I just I snapped, you know, I'm like, don't it. We're done. We don't say can't in this house, Bob, you know, <laughs> and then. She came back and was like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And it was, you know, it was all good. But I'm just like, man, I pushed that. I pushed the PMA. And I'm like a huge H2O fan, you know, so bad brains, all that good stuff. It's kind of like saying I get to instead of I have to. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yep. And then uh, another one I really liked, another quote was from Henry Ford. And it was... uh, if money is your hope for independence, you will never have it. The only real security that a man will have in this world is a reserve of knowledge, experience, and ability. I thought that was fucking badass, too. That yeah, a that's the truth, man. That's stuff that's portable when you don't have money. That right. stuff still remains. Exactly. And, that's- yeah, you know, I've been there. I've had to sell all my shit. It sucks. Mm-hmm. So- I uh, lost it all and gained it all twice. Know all about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's rough, man. So, what really brought you on to starting to write a book? Because I know just from other podcasts I've listened to you on that you, it took you seven years to write the book. What like put you on yeah. that trajectory to do it? 
it was just this beach walk where I was just convicted that I had to write about the value of failure. I was walking through two failures in my life. One was a divorce that was about to happen. And then one was a you know marital divorce. And then one was a business divorce that just happened that made me reevaluate everything. And I was thinking about all the different ventures and uh, pursuits that I'd gone after in my 20s and 30s and you know what had made me go after them. Why had I kept going when obstacles rose? Why was I not discouraged when things went terribly wrong? Why did I still have a lion heart? How did I reinvent myself? And it was like, it was enthusiasm. So I thought about like the Winston Churchill quote that success is going from failure to failure right. without loss of enthusiasm. And for me, enthusiasm was like this fucking endorphin of the spirit. Like it kept me going. So no matter what happened, I found a way to reinvent. There would be some latent desire in me that, that I had to chase after to at least try to satiate. And I just, um, I wanted to write about the things that inspired me, the inputs that kept me going, whether it's music, whether it's, um, you know, books or whether it's uh, philosophy or spirituality or personal experiences and uh, aggregate it together to see if others would find value in it. Well, we have, man. It's much appreciated. Awesome. It's great to hear. Mission accomplished. Definitely. <laughs> so that was the genesis. Did you have like a, a writer's process that kind of worked for you, like a certain place that you went or uh, something you were listening to or did it kind of just you were jotting things down as they came in your mind? Yeah. So I didn't have like a prescribed process, but a process emerged. So initially it was just like six or seven ideas on a digital sticky note. And then I just started building it out and writing. And like the first dump, the first draft was really rough and was mostly just like me getting out my experience and my feelings about my experience, but they were like reactionary feelings. And as I went back, I was able to like actually think more about, you know, real change that was wrought in me through these experiences. And that then kind of brought the writing into like lesson territory. And I was able to extract lessons from each chapter. Those lessons then all kind of naturally grouped up to these overarching themes, which became the rules. So the, the five rules of failure. And so it just kind of like revealed itself over time. And then I layered in the case studies from, you know, a wide array of people, you know, everybody from Ryan Holiday to Rodney Dangerfield to Andrew Yang to John Joseph, David Goggins to Stephen Pressfield. I laid all that stuff in to give a texture and to give it kind of, you know, to take it away from just be, being the focus on me. Because, you know, I'm only so interesting, you know, it's more interesting to layer in famous or even not so famous, but emerging influencers or people in spaces that I really like or admire, you know, my niche uh, subcultural interests, whether it's the cigar world or hardcore punk or entrepreneurial thought or whatever it might be. And so, you know, through many iterations over seven years, it just really kind of revealed its structure to me and uh, became what it is. Yeah, I've tried writing like small little things and I have to say like first kudos to you for writing a book and two for writing a book with I mean it's like 500 pages like that's quite a bit of writing so it's a lot of work to put in. Yeah to start from uh, seven things in a digital sticky note. Yeah. I have millions of those and that's about as far as they go you know. Yeah, well you know I caught lightning a few times you know what I mean like there's just yeah. times in my life where the passion just drove me. And then it's just like fucking like the muse just like was so clear to me. And it was almost like this divine download just hitting me. It was like I just had to deliver the package, right? The, right. the, the, the package of the words. world. It was just coming the fucking through me, especially during the pandemic. I just remember sitting I was in South Philly at the time before I moved back to Delco. And I was on my balcony and like fucking on the weekends, like wouldn't shower, nothing. Just go out there in my fucking robe, light up a cigar, <laughs> pour an Irish coffee. 
six hours later, I got 6,000 words, man. It was just like dump. Like it was just coming to me. It was like, again, it was like this divine download. And, um, when you catch momentum like that, you just got to roll with it. I write about that in the book. I write about Michael Connolly, the author of Bosch uh, and Lincoln Lawyer, and he talks about getting that flow state and catching that momentum. And I was lucky to catch it. That was the second kind of back end of writing the book. I was probably half done and taking breaks here and there. And then when the pandemic hit, man, it's just like, boom, there's this vacuum of time and energy. And it just, you know, that just fucking came about out. and just fell into it. That's fucking great. I kind of figured out on myself where I'm recently, you know, after, you know, I guess still got a halfway to go in your book, but where I'm most, I feel like I'm most creative and most, I don't know, sharpest, I guess, like four in the morning to like eight in the morning, you know, and then for whatever reason, it's shit. It's just like out back to normal work day. But before that, it's just like my mind's fucking racing. There's the least amount of distractions in those periods of time, though, probably. I'll get to work. I'm like, I don't want to fucking weld, man. I got to fucking listen to this record, that record. I got to do this shit for the podcast. You know, it's like <laughs> get all distracted. Yeah, I mean, everybody has different, like, times that work best for them. But, I mean, you know, a lot of people it is, like, an hour or so after they wake up is when they can do their deepest work if they can get rid of the distractions. Um, and I find that to be true. And I also do really, really well working at night most nights yeah you know when everything's quiet and i'm not thinking about the next phone call and the you know the text texts start to stop and it's after 9 p.m like 9 to 2 in the morning has always been like a time of fucking real uh, productivity for me even if i'm like drinking bourbon and smoking cigars crank up the tunes i can just get lost into a flow state and really uh, you know find that so this book isn't your first book right yeah i wrote a spy novel i don't think it came out like 2015 so that was my first book. And I didn't put too much into that. It was kind of my first crack at writing. Yeah. But it gave me like some experience with like the writing and publishing process. Uh, but then when Failure Rules came out, I really went wider. I think it has a lot more, um, I don't know, viability in a, in a bunch of different spaces. And nonfiction typically does better than fiction. And this was more encapsulating of all my interests and uh, more just dear to me just because it's pretty vulnerable about like the core experiences in my life and, and the things that are most important to me in terms of like lessons and principles and, and like philosophical anchorings. Were there any failures from your first book that you wrote that you used as building blocks into your second book? Yeah, um, for sure. The notion of trying to keep the chapters tight and trying to have like structure within the chapter i mean it's different because it was going from fiction to nonfiction, and also just really taking seriously editing feedback so the first book i had one editor and i didn't take to heart all his suggestions second book i had a team of a team of professionals working at scribe media who had all worked at big publishing houses hired them and they all had input and uh, they really helped me take the manuscript i think from from good to great and so that was wildly uh you know, important. I guess though, yeah. too, with fiction, I mean, wouldn't you say you have more, you have a lot more cushion, a lot more room to just do whatever you want? I mean, wouldn't you say from a writer's point of view or no? Am I wrong? Totally. Yeah. Wrong. From, from like a standpoint. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, it's definitely more imaginative, but there are, there are things too with fiction, even that I learned from that book from feedback that if I write another novel, I'll take to heart. Like it's just the idea that making sure that each chapter you know, it has some sort of dramatic event and or so, some dramatic character development and kind of ends with some sort of 
some sort of cliffhanger on each chapter gotcha. to get people on the page and to keep the chapters tight, like keep them like 1500 words. So um, people don't feel like they're diving into too much to commit to a chapter before they go yeah, into. Yeah. Those you know, are from, things from if I sat down to write, I would have never thought of, I mean, it'd just be like, okay, story arc, you know, blah, blah, blah. Be like a Stephen King yeah. book. Yeah. It'd be like a Stephen <laughs> King book. But um, I mean, even with failure rules, I, I tried to keep each chapter to 1500 words. That was my goal. But then there were certain ones where it just made sense to let them go longer. Well, so yeah, some you like don't have to. Also, I like the uh, your Carl moment. Tell us about your Carl. Moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Carl was a real dude. Not going to reveal his last name, but um, he uh, he was um, he was the lawyer moved um, to the Philly area to become the VP of Relapse Records. And I was working out in the gym one night, Philly suburb. And I, at the time, I was really struggling with you know, working this shitty uh, job as a, as a bill collector for Ford Credit. And I, I think at the time I had, oh, yeah, I had just been recalled to that job after having been laid off. And I saw Carl at the gym one night. He had a Snapcase shirt on. I never really liked Snapcase, just to be honest. Um, but, you know, respect him, right? But it was more like, oh, there's somebody with a hardcore shirt in the gym. Right, like, right, that's, definitely. That's crazy. And it was like just a connection. So we started talking. Next thing you knew, I'd already started Thorpe Records, but, you know, had only released one record. It was Breakdown. Or I think I might have released a Rikers record, too. And so I wanted to get in the music business. And turns out I found out what he did and followed up with him back and forth for a couple of weeks or whatever and interviewed at Relapse and ended up getting a job at Relapse running their wholesale department. And so it was like the core moment is the idea, like, there, there could be this breakthrough connector if you're, you know, aware enough to see somebody in your life, whether it's a mentor or just a super connector, that you know, engaging with that person and, you know, seizing an opportunity that might arise from knowing them can totally change the trajectory of your career and or your life. And this was one of them. Like this got me my first job in the music industry, which was a paid education to help me run my labels at night. Uh, that then led to working at Lumberjack, a bunch of other things. Right. And it was just like that one meeting that I couldn't have planned. You know, it just sort of happened serendipitously, but you have to be aware of these things and you have to like keep your eyes open for them. Um, and you almost have to grab just it. That kind of, yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's the idea that like all around us are opportunities that we're not even aware of, um, but we need to try to be aware of any breadcrumbs that are, that are put our way to just you know see where they might lead. Kind of what we're doing with the when we started the podcast, which people that listen to us heard this story a few times, but it was just like, well, we bullshit in here, let's record it, and then it turned into, yeah. well, we know this guy plays in this band and. Then it turned into interviewing people, and now we're all the way to you know you, and um, it's a real fucking, it's a nice change of pace from like life, you know what I mean? To come in here for an hour, two hours, and um, talk with people, like to learn about other people's lives, but it would be nice to take it into a direction to where uh, we could live off of it, not even comfortably, just maybe as I am now, you know. <laughs> Are you saying yeah. you live uncomfortably now? Not uncomfortably, but I live. I'm. I live how I live. I don't know how to put it. <laughs> like around uh, here, it like, would, podcasts are hard, man. It's yeah. uh, we. I've definitely learned a lot as we're going along. Yeah, and that's another thing that I I find kind of incomparable with your with your journey is like we're learning as we go, just as you did with this book, you know. Yeah, it was the same way with the record labels, man. I mean, I learned a lot of hard lessons early on. It's found a way to keep going, you know. Definitely um, labor of love, eh? It is, right? But it's like, I don't know, for me, like, even if it's something that might not be monetizable or might be 
uh, or you might not be able to make a living off of, you got to try. Oh and, yeah, uh, yeah. You, you still got you got to do it in a smart way, in a patient way. But like, I can't let something that I really, really want to do just go by the wayside because it seems like it's too difficult or might not be practical or might not work. Like I had to fucking try. And if I try and it only works halfway or works for a little while or doesn't work at all, at least I tried and then I'll have no regrets. Like destroying yeah, future regret is very important to me. I don't ever want to look back and be like, oh, I could have, I should have. Why didn't I ever do that? Like, no, I did it and it didn't work or it did work or it worked for a little bit and then didn't work and I'm satiated. Like do it all, chase it until satiation either way and like you know everything that's burned within me you know i chase at some point and then there's always new things that come up like you know there's new things that you know even come up now that i might want to do in the future you know yeah so, uh, it's just a matter of like as my portfolio pursuits pursuits evolve if something drops off and then there's an opening i already have a desire to invoke to fill that space so you always have so you're just the type of person that just always has has that need to pursue things like basically even if they're unrelated to each other yeah for sure because they have different purposes right i mean anything i do in banking and finance side investments they might be more practically oriented they're still interesting to me um you know the, the record labels has its own kind of category you know uh the book has its own category and even within the books there's two very different types i mean the spy novel versus a business psychology book yeah yeah they're right very different i mean and then, you know, I've done bodybuilding competitions and, you know, the gym and, and I've owned other businesses. And, you know, I just have keeping my interests very wide has allowed me to not only be really over time more financially stable, but also I'm more fulfilled. I, I become more interesting as I'm more interested, you know. Right. And then you meet different types of people. And then as your life changes, you don't identif over identify with anything. So, you know, if you think of yourself like I'm just a mailman or I'm just a, a banker, but then something happens where you're no longer that and you put all, all your right. you, like identity eggs in that basket and then it changes. Like, yep. what do you got? Like, you got to have mention to your life so that you're flexible and, and you know, multidimensional. Just don't over identify with one thing. Just keep kind of an evolving portfolio of, of pursuits. And I found that to be a real key to life, at least for me. Oh, I think you're uh, correct. I was forced into that kind of situation when I was younger with a job, which I thought I was going to work there forever. You know, everybody did, right? And um, yeah, yeah. I never in a million years would I thought I'd, I'd become a welder. But that was the quickest way to get the quickest mm -hmm. amount of money. You know what I mean? And with the shortest amount mm -hmm. of school or whatever. So here I am. And uh, welder slash podcast host. Yeah. So it's like, and it's gotten me, you know, to where I'm at, which is better than where I was. Yeah. But yeah. You're, uh, yeah. And that's important. You definitely have like an expansive portfolio of things between author, label owner, gym owner. I see like your uh, cigar stuff on the Instagram and whatnot. And I don't know if you run your own cigars or like you have your own cigars made at this point yet, but. Definitely your eggs are yeah, spread I around. Uh, I don't have my own cigars, but I have a cigar line for my clothing company, Soul and Fire. So Soul and Fire Smokeware. Yeah, Soul and yeah, Fire yeah. is a chapter in the book, so it's a really company connected to, to that chapter. Yeah, you just, you have, uh, what, shirts, tank tops? I thought that's some other shit. can't yeah. remember. Yeah. Got a PMA one and all kinds of different ones. That's like, dope. Half of them is like cigar, the other half are like general themes from the book, you know? Yeah, 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 definitely. It's always nice to have a little revenue stream there. Yeah. Are 
either of your record labels, are they still currently active or no? Because I know, like, I've followed and seen a ton of the Sailor's Grave bands. And then, like, I've seen some of the Thorpe Records bands. But are either labels still putting stuff out or is that kind of on the back burner? So Thorpe is pretty much a catalog label at this point. It hasn't released anything since 2009. Sailor's Grave is the more active one and kind of put out a batch of records here and there as opportunity or time allows or interest. So Sailor's Grave is still, I would say, semi-active, still working with a lot of the bands that are like touring on the road, still Goddamn Gallows, the Coffin Cats, um, Flatfoot 56, who actually played my wedding a few years back. <laughs> so cool. yeah, still, that would be the one that's more like more like active. Um, but I haven't put records out for years for Sailor's Grave either, but there's a possibility I might be doing some stuff in, in 2024. I kind of shifted my focus and money and energy towards the book stuff recently. So that's kind of why the, the label has been quiet, but at some point uh, I'll probably start to do some stuff again with sailor's grave. It's just, it's, it's kind of more, um, I don't know. We've really found a niche there that really works um, from a economic standpoint, from a reputation standpoint and aesthetic standpoint. That's yeah. You and need. you have a solid run of bands on both labels. So, and I, I remember yeah. when Goddamn Gallows' last record that they just did came out. I remember buying that from the Sailor's Grave website. I think it was like 2017 or 18, somewhere around there. Yeah, 2018, The Trial. Yeah, yep. Yeah, The Trial, that's what it was. Yeah, great record. I was trying to think of the great name guy. in my head as I was saying that, and I kept wanting to say The Maker, and that was the one before it. That was the one before it, yeah, yeah, that's right. I have a question, if you remember, yeah. about a band from Thorpe. Um, the band's name was Dead Serious. The album was, like, the CD was pink. Oh, yeah. They had a song called Smiling yeah, Yellow yeah. Tooth Bastard. <laughs> it was, like, so fucking tough. And nobody, like, me and uh, one other person, when we were kids, like, we were fucking, yeah, this shit's great. And nobody cared. They were like, it's not. <laughs> you know, because it's just, like, so tough and funny. Yeah, they had kind of a low impact, but they're a great band. I mean, they were coming from the... Uh... What at the time was a real burgeoning D.C., Virginia, Maryland scene, Striking okay. Distance, Down to Nothing. Dead Serious was friends with those guys. So I'd done the Striking Distance record, Down to Nothing, Dead Serious, all those. Okay, that's um, how that yeah, connection they, they happened. Up in that crop. They were good, man. They were good. Oh, yeah, definitely. Shit's like I said. I fucking I remember that came out on Thorpe, um, Northside Kings, that Madball NY. Oh, yeah. HC was like, that's like their best fucking EP probably. It's pretty good. I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was yeah. just drifting there for a sec. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, the Man Boy EP, that's when Four of My Enemies, that debuted to the world. That was also on their full length later on Ferret, but yeah, it first yeah. came out on the. On... Oh, yeah. That's a, that's like a get pumped song for sure. When I was young, like I said, yeah. that came out when I was probably 17, maybe 18. Nice. So I was still. um. Nice. What's the word? Malleable. Like you could influence me and do yeah. dumb shit. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. Oh yeah, and then uh, when you, were, you guys were just talking about the coffin cats, and I I noticed um, you uh, quoted them from the way of the road from the song. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he did a whole chapter on that. Yeah, um, just because like they were like this model of like you know like what we were talking about before, like only is better than best. Like their right. uniqueness. I mean, yeah, they think it's like Billy aesthetic and all of that, but like they had their own iconography, like just everything they did to create the, the entity of the coffin cats was really wholly unique. And just the personalities between the family members, you know, who are now also the returning members, you know, Vic and Eric and Tommy, like there's just this distinctness about all of them 
And so it's just writing about like this concept of having the book of thing one and thing two, thing one being like an enabler pursuit that allows you to like more strategically go after like an aspirational thing two dream pursuit. And like the definition of the thing two being something that like really represents like the most, uh, the highest, you know, composite of your unique attributes and, and creativity and all that. So like coffin camps were, were an example of that. So um, wrote a whole chapter about them, you know, related to that theme and, and even talking about how they like how they organize the business of the coffin cats and and how that was just um, unique and i remember coffin cats when they were v8 nightmare oh right that's right yeah yeah yeah. i was yep. just thinking about buzz buzzkill bitch that was a fucking popular song around here yep yeah no i've seen i've seen coffin cats yeah well they're still going man oh yeah oh yeah they so still, they still like this last summer like they're just still going man they don't, they don't fucking stop no I, they've been a band forever yeah uh, i forget what the anniversary was i don't know if it was 15 or 20 years but some somewhere around it was there. Fuck, it was 20, like 20 i'm pretty sure I don't know. 20 fucking years i think that's that's probably the case yeah I think I'm pretty sure yeah. it was 20 because I remember seeing yeah. it and I was like, holy fuck, 20 years. Yeah, that's yeah. time flies. Uh, but they'll get to 32 given that we're all sober now. Oh, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll definitely make it to 30. They'll still be playing, I guarantee it. I think Goddamn Gallows will get there too. Yeah. That's another band that. Yeah, I've well, seen. Goddamn Gallows. They don't even have, like, I don't think they have even regular jobs really, I mean, a little bit here and there, but yeah, no, yeah they're they, like committed warriors. They're almost like fucking gypsies, you know, like that's their life. Yeah. I mean, it goes with their music, though. They do have that gypsy sound, so. Like gypsy punk to most, yeah. 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 Born to Lie, that pops in my head out of that. I had a, a really um crappy band, and we played with the goddamn Gallows one time. It was a lot of fun, though, you know. Super nice dudes. Yeah, wild. Love them. Love them. Great live show. So you were running labels at the time of like physical media not really doing so well and you're still kind of you're still kind of in that business now so like what do you notice now with how much physical media has changed like as far as running labels i know you said you're a little inactive with it but you caught the tail end of it Yeah, yeah i mean so i you know at this point like the highest value is in streaming long term Short term, you might get some, some vinyl sales with enthusiasts uh, and then some ongoing sales through the band on the road for, for vinyl, maybe a little bit for CD for some bands, but CDs pretty much dead. Yeah. Um, so like it's even, even downloads are a smaller percentage of streaming. So, I mean, it's just everything's digitized. Our world is becoming more and more virtual in, in all realms of life, like whether it's banking like we talked about or, or music or even you know, whatever else too. like it freaks me out man like all i see is skynet I grew up on terminator and that's like all i see what freaks me out we sell more cassette tapes in the store here than we do cds it's weird i can see that well because there's, well there's a nostalgia factor to that right like cds is still seen as like only recently demised right whereas cassette seems like more more old and more cool and more, more like an artifact. It's like, I could see why it would be cool for certain enthusiasts to want to get cassettes where yeah. a CD doesn't and seem very archival. Yeah. It's the same with like DVDs. Like people buy VHS tape before a DVD, but yeah. I think CDs yeah. and DVDs will like have, they'll have their day in the sun again. I'm sure. If, yeah. If people yeah. can still sell hit clips, <laughs> we'll be able to sell fucking CDs at some point. 
Yeah, I got some boxes in my garage if you ever need them. <laughs> Full CDs. So. Yeah, we do buy them. We just don't pay much for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have yeah. a cigar question that's kind of a little unrelated to things, but I've always wondered this. What makes a good cigar? Because I've smoked like... Oh, man. I, I know you're like much more fluent in this than I ever have been or will be, but I've smoked a few things that people are like, oh, this is a good cigar, and I taste it, and I'm like, this is shitty, and I'm like, I don't understand how people enjoy smoking cigars, but then the enthusiasts are so enthusiastic that it leads me to believe that something out there has to be good. Well, like, I don't know your palate, and, and it's also like you graduate, your palate graduates, right, through repeated smoking, so... Uh, and it depends on what you pair it with and time of day, but like, you know, there's a number of brands that, that I like. I like uh, my father was, was Tampa tobacco. I like uh, CAO. I like Oliva. I like uh, San Lantano. There's a bunch of them that I like, but you know, they're all kind of like price range somewhere between like eight and $15 a stick. Right. So um, I also like box press the most. I smoke a lot of non box press cigars too, but I like to feel box press good draw, very fluffy kind of smoking experience, uh, maintains construction, holds an ash. All those things are very important indicators. Typically in the morning, I'll like something like light to medium bodied with coffee. And then in the afternoon, the evening, I graduate to, you know, more, uh, sometimes sun grown too, or I'll graduate to like, uh, you know, Maduro's more uh, darker, more rich full body cigars. Um, But uh, even now, like I used to like, buy the same couple cigars and get a box every two weeks mm-hmm. or a couple boxes every two weeks of the same cigars. But now I just switch it up a lot, man. Cause I just really enjoy like just trying a whole bunch of different ones, you know? Um, so I, I try to like try new stuff all the time. I'm really into Placencia lately. It's a really great, great stick that I've been into. So I don't know. I, I think it's just certain people love them. Certain people don't. There certainly are shitty cigars. I can turn you off if that's what you get first. Right. Um, but I would find somebody who is really an enthusiast and, steer your right to give you a good experience so yeah there's so much more to that than i thought there would be but uh it's kind of like wine too like there's a lot to everybody's palate is different but i'll have to we do have like a cigar store here that has like hum, a humidified shopping area and all this stuff so i'll have to check it out yeah it might be a little pricey it's a gold smoke go get an olivia oliva milanio get one of those olivia milano I'm going to write that down. Aluba Milano. Yeah, yeah, I could get one of those. I got to go get rolled. Yeah, you want to stay away from, like, convenience store shit. You want to go to, like, a high-end, real, like, tobacconist and, and get a real cigar. I mean, you're going to spend some money, but it's going to be a 90-minute experience, experience. If you pair with the right beverage, might change your life. <laughs> right on. So I, like, for years broke down Philly sweets and rolled weed in them, but they, you can't find them anymore. Well, hey, that's a different purpose. That makes sense. Because <laughs> those things ought to be gutted. You don't want to smoke them as it is. Yeah, so I, never, I never even tried one, actually, as a normal cigar, just because I knew it would taste bad. And like, yeah, you don't, I don't, you don't want to smoke that as I don't smoke cigarettes and stuff, so, like, aside from weed, I'm not really smoking anything. But I am yeah. interested yeah. in trying out, like, a good cigar, though, just to... Just to experience it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, Try I get pre- you go with the Oliva Melania. Start off with that. All right. I got to get papers when I leave here, so I'll check for it. We're going to be all fucking I... puffing cigars <laughs> yeah. in here. How many do you uh, smoke a day? <laughs> like one in the Three morning? Three to four a day, usually. Three to four? Yeah. And uh, you're basically always puffing. Three to four, yeah, throughout the day. That's cool. 
and you don't um i guess i yeah. just yeah, i mean if i'm not working out or in the shower having sex i'm pretty much smoking a cigar yeah fuck that bring a bring the cigar to the gym and in the bed just keep it on <laughs> yeah dude it's always burning but that's cool it can work in the bed maybe the bedside <laughs> i do smoke in the car on the way to the gym oh there you go there yeah you go. but i have a i have a I got ventilation in my office at home and I work from home. So, you know, as long as I'm not on a zoom call, I'm, I'm puffing away most of the time, but you know, they, they last a long time too. And you, you know, you don't inhale and you know, they taste differently with different foods or beverages, you know, like coffee in the morning, bourbon and tequila at night, you know, whatever it is. And so I don't know, man, life is just very dry without them for me. Like uh, when there's been times where I've been like sick or whatever, and I, I can't really smoke, like life just seems less enjoyable. It just seems dry. Well, I noticed when you on your um, Instagram, when you go to like cigar little con conventions and this and that, you look like you're having a pretty fucking good time. Yeah, now, yeah, I went to uh, the Vegas um, PCA Premium Cigar Association trade show. It was like five or six days, and like everybody was just so happy. It was all the enthusiasts and the people in the business and everything like that. And I've been to a lot of trade shows, uh, you know, in in my life in different spaces, whether it's in fitness or music or banking and music is fun, obviously, but like, I've never seen more happier people than at the cigar trade show. Like, was that just smiles, like just enjoying the culture, enjoying all everything. Vegas. Like it was just fucking awesome. Yeah. That sounds great. It was five or six days in Vegas. It's nuts. Yeah, I was actually there a full seven days because I buffered a couple of days after the conference to just party and go to Fremont Street and just screw around. And we went to the Punk Rock Museum, which was fucking awesome. Uh, so yeah. um, yeah. got to drink at the bar at the Punk Rock Museum and see all the uh, exhibits. They had a killer room just dedicated just to hardcore. So they had all like the old New York bands up there. They had, you know, Youth of the Day and Sick of It All. Had a little mad ball picture in there, which fucking was awesome. A. Like see a band I worked with like yeah. in the museum, you know. Fucking uh, A. Got to see a Motorhead shrine they have there with Lemmy's actual boots and guitar and a bottle of Jack Daniels. That was awesome. And Suicidal Tendencies was in there and just so much fucking history. It was just, they really did a good job organizing it from like decade to get decade and splitting out the subgenres and the different movements. And it was, it was really cool. Fuck, man. Whenever I get to Vegas, I'll stop in there. Yeah, definitely check it out. It's worth it. I mean, it's not like a all day thing, but, you know, go in there for an hour or two to check out the tour and go oh, have a drink sure. and hang out for a bit. Cool. They got a bar there, which is cool. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a fucking genius idea. Was Fat Mike there when you went there? He wasn't. Um, when we went, like it was later at night, so there was no tour guide. He was gone. But I guess the tour guide that day was, I think it was um, one of the guys who was uh, in ministry and was also in nausea, but I don't remember his name. Is that what they always do? They just have people from bands? I just, the... I just noticed on Fat Mike's Instagram, he's always got some celebrity tour guy. Uh, okay. so I thought maybe, you know. Yeah. Like... yeah, I mean, he was one of the ones, I think, I don't know if he owns it or whatever, but he was the one who, one of the ones helping to get it going. Like, he was Yeah, I, know, I don't know if he owns and, uh, it, but he, like, he definitely had his hand in the, in the making of. Yeah. Yeah, making it happen for sure. Yeah, I mean, the guided tours were more expensive. They were like 100 bucks versus I think it was like 30 bucks just to go in. So I was only going to pay for a guided tour if it was like really somebody I wanted to get guided by, you right. know? So, yeah, that's, Roger that's Morel quite from the AF difference. Did it. What's that? That's a big difference, man. 100 to 30. I think I'd take the $30 away myself. Yeah, I mean, unless it's like when Pete from Sick of It All did it or Roger from AF did it, then maybe I'd pay. But, oh, yeah, I guess um, you do you have know, a point. Unless it was there really. Somebody, unless it was somebody I really didn't, you know, wanted to hang out with, I wouldn't do it, you know? Yeah, I would, especially, like, from somebody who's been there and, like, rubbed elbows with a lot of the people in that scene, like, you can just kind of guide yourself. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, no, it was uh, it was great. I'd go back again if uh, next time I'm in Vegas for sure. The cool part is that they have a bar, right? So you, you get the experience, but then you can hang out with other people and shoot the shit and have a drink and meet them. They got a tattoo shop in there too. Oh, um, you know, so maybe next like, time I'll get some ink. <laughs> it hits every aspect yeah. of the whole scene. <laughs> do they have? Do, yeah. you, do they have anybody in particular working in the the tattoo parlor? Tattoo shop. Not when I was there. It was kind of like nobody was even in that area, which I was a little bummed about. But I know that recently C.J. Ramon actually was there doing tattoos. Oh shit! So cool. Yeah, and I don't know who else. They, I guess they have guest tattooers, right? And they had a bunch of flash on the wall, like very specific, like genres or bands. Like they had a whole flash of Cox Bar. They had a flash of Bane. They had like a flash rancid flash. It was like cool. They had like a lot of like That's cool fucking like gnarly. band. They yeah. had Bane. That was the one that took me for surprise that yeah, they were even in there. Definitely. Because, you know, hardcore is less, more lesser represented there, let alone straight edge fucking hardcore, you know? So it was right. kind of interesting that they had Bane Flash. When I took our, our son to a show, it was for Bane's uh, final run of shows, and yeah. uh, they're still going, so that was kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just played uh, This Is Hardcore. Did you go to that? Uh, last month. Yeah, I just I went one day. I had, a, I had like, a, a table with selling uh, failure rules and selling with fire merch. Awesome. So I was there for for the one day for Saturday. Yeah, that place. Yeah, I really is enjoyed. Uh, yeah, it's worthwhile, man. It's it's an institution now. I mean, Joey's done an amazing job with that for years and years and years. For me, like I kind of got out of touch with a lot of the newer bands, and so kind of like getting in touch with that was cool. Like seeing Mind Force and Raw Brigade and Pain of Truth, like those bands really fucking roll. It's cool to see like, oh, hardcore is actually not dead. No, yeah. like these new bands come up that actually have really distinct sounds and really kick ass or whether it's Drain or Ingrown or whoever else. I'm like, was, man, it's like really cool to see. Yeah, fuck yeah, dude. I was just going to ask about Drain right before you name dropped it. I have a Pain of Truth album like <laughs> in the mail somewhere. Yeah, they're good. I totally agree. It's like in my, uh, actually it's my old lady that was, she's like, have you, like she's the one that found Drain originally. She's like, have you heard this? It, you know, because she comes from, it's like the scene too, you know, like around here from like the late nineties. And then I'm like hearing all, it's just, I think it's a fucking awesome time yeah. for hardcore. Yeah. Which I never would have predicted. Like I, I stopped no. paying attention for a while and really only paid attention to street punk. World. And then coming back, I'm like, Oh wow, this is so cool to see that it's coming back and it's coming back with like roots intact, but still with like a new flavor and diversity to it. Right. You know? Right. I think it's cool. You know, it's just, it's great to see like that. My kid, my son, who's 22, like his generation, like there's kids his age getting into hardcore now. Like yeah, that, right? that makes me happy. Yeah. And it's it's yeah. like all over the world too. It's not just New York and California. Yeah, for sure. Like there's sure. bands coming out of Australia, out of Korea, out of fucking Alaska. Well that's what's so crazy just, is like hardcore in particular, there was no internet. You just connected with people that you connected with over music or whatever. So like when you think about it, we missed out on a shit ton of music that we now have access to, you know, with the yeah. with the foreign bands and fully democratized it for sure. And I love the oh man, yeah. there's a whole grip like, of bands that are just like, I think they're from Columbia or something. Right, right. But they might sound like they're from fucking the Lower East Side or something, you know. I've heard bands that sound <laughs> they sound like a straight up American band, and then they're like, oh, we're from you know Finland or something, and. What you're not playing metal? I don't know. It's funny. Right, 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 right. Metal. Yeah. What are a lot what of are... good foreign oi bands? Stomper '98, Lions Law. Well, we had an interview with a band from uh, Belgium, and that was pretty cool. You know, 
It's always a place I wanted to visit. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Been, but yeah. Just to fucking hang out there, man. Uh, There's the scene yeah. there. <laughs> fucking awesome. And then Germany would be another place I'd hang out in. Germany would be cool, but I don't know. Belgium, I guess. I never. I I hear they have good waffles. Shit, I'd be all over that. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are some of the bands that got you into hardcore? Like you said, hardcore has always been a big part in your life. What started that for you? Yeah, I guess probably like when I was in like seventh grade, being introduced to like punk bands after listening to classic rock and like metal, like listening to like hair bands and, and then shit like ACDC and Sabbath and classic rock. And all of a sudden discovering from like my skater friends, like, Oh, here's like Murphy's law. You know, there's self-titled album. Here's like black flag. Here's like this band ruined from Philly. Here's sex pistols. Here's even like dead milkman, like getting introduced to those bands. And once I heard like black flag and, and Murphy's law, it was over. Yeah, I was like, gonna, yeah. I was awesome. this. I was like, this is like this. This resonates with my spirit, my energy, not this other stuff. Like, my energy's raw, and this shit's raw. My energy's urgent, and this shit's urgent. Urgent. This is where I where I need to like lean in. You know. I seen Murphy's Law. They played with uh, Earth Mover, Cold as Life, and the Alliance. I think. I also have seen Murphy's Law. They're fucking badass. Yeah, Jimmy G have, is one yeah, of a kind. Talk about, uh, talk about only is better and best. That's Jimmy G. Yeah. There will never be another. Fucking <laughs> you know, like, And you can watch him on Donahue, you know, from like 1986 or something. Have right. you seen that? It's fucking awesome. It's a little kid. <laughs> yeah, and Vinny Stigma on there. That's yeah. that's another one I was thinking that would be a cool uh, guest tattooer in, at the punk rock thing. Fuck yeah. yeah. I'd, let, I'd have Stigma put something on me for sure. There'd, yeah. be a, there'd be a fucking lineup. You didn't make it laugh the whole time. I remember I was in a, I was, I went to CAF in Vegas once because I was at a, actually was at a conference for Lumberjack that we had with all our labels back in the day. And uh, AF was playing. And I was there with uh, Dave Stein, AF's attorney, who had also kind of done some legal work. He was actually representing some bands I was signing, right? So we kind of okay. knew each other. And um, we went to go see AF. And it was the first time I met Stigma. And uh, it was after the show. And w- once he found he, he dropped a reference to the accused, the old band, the accused, yeah. more fun than uh, than open casket funeral, casket funeral, their album. He said the accused. I said the name of the album. And he was so excited that I even knew who the fuck they were. And all of a sudden, like he just started telling joke after joke to me. <laughs> and I was laughing because he's funny. And then it was like I was like this captured audience for him, man. And he just like this is like all, all night sitting in the van, like just hanging out. He was just like. He was just cracking me up, man. It was just like he was, he came alive. He was put on a show, you know. That's fucking awesome. Fucking guys. I actually, the one and only time I saw AF, it was, was with Murphy's Law and uh, Madball and Death Threat. And that's been the best show I've seen in my, you know, life. But I think that's going to change October 7th. Oh, yeah, oh, it's October seventh. Right. Is that the coldest life uh, reunion? Is yeah. that what that is? And it's like, I'm almost, dude, terror, death threat, integrity, like, it's just fucking crazy. And there's a lot Madball of guy too. Madball, yeah. Fucking nuts, so I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. Is Hate Inks playing too? Yeah, yeah. that's gonna yeah. be uh yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it's gonna be nuts. Basis the basis for Cold as Life, Craig Holloway. Um, he actually did the all the designs for me for Soul and Fire for the cigar uh streetwear line. They're all no Craig shit. Holloway designs. Ah, uh, that's fucking yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's fucking awesome. I went and visited him in Texas and him and his wife, like in we were getting the designs together because um, 
and he lives near Austin and that's where my publisher was for the book. And I was down there before the book was released, getting the marketing plan all ironed out with them and met with him and we were finishing up the designs. And yeah, he's a fucking awesome dude. Crazy man, small world. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I've never met him, but I've definitely seen a ton of his artwork. I, I have some of it hanging yeah, on the wall. Say, I got a lot of it at my house, yeah, actually. Hanging on walls. I got a Cold as Life shirt She's on right now. It might be one of his. Uh, yeah, it might be. I'd have to take it off and look at the back. You can leave it on, dude. <laughs> I didn't plan on taking yeah. it off. So, anyway, back to the book before we wrap things up here. Are you doing yeah. any, like, touring, like, book signings or around places or, like, pop-ups and stuff like that? I know you said you were doing a few different places that you were set up selling. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm still focusing on doing as many podcasts as possible. So, podcast tour kind of has the most most impact right now and is the easiest to, to get set up, you know. Right, but I sure. am also in the fall and into the winter are going to be doing, like, book signings and like little events at cigar lounges. Um, I'm going to be doing one in Dallas uh, in the fall, another one in Jersey and a, and a bunch of others in the Northeast. So I'm going to see how that goes. And then from there, I got some ideas of potentially partnering up with some other music oriented authors and doing like, maybe like I got this concept of doing like a punk rock PMA smoke spoken word tour. So that's totally in its like developing stages, but that's something I want to try to put together and uh, get some people in mind, see if it might work. Cause I think that would be fucking rad kind of fill in that void of that was, that's kind of been left by like Rollins spoken word, you know, even though he right. still does it, but like that same kind of idea, but with like two other authors that are like in the, if not punk and punk adjacent. And then, yeah, so that, and then I might at some point even try to do some signings in the actual bookstores, but for right now I'm focusing on doing as many podcasts as possible. And um, at some point I'll start my own podcast, but I'm just building up my own network more now and put my energies towards appearances. And then maybe sometime next year, I might actually launch the failure rules podcast. Yeah, that would be sweet. It's, uh, building up the yeah. network is the main thing. Cause like, if you already have a pre-existing network of people willing to listen to what you say, then your podcast will start off a lot better. Yeah. Right. And then going on other podcasts and, you know, can have a lot of those hosts as guests and just different people I know or have met through through music or through the cigar world or now through the entrepreneurial space and, I mean, I've been on a, like a wide variety of podcasts. I mean, oh, for, uh, yeah, we, everything we from went like, some. like mindset to like cigars to hardcore, you know, everything. On you your can, cigar tour, are you going to come anywhere close to Michigan? It's a good question. It's a possibility. I mean, I used to live out that way, so I definitely know some lounges, you know, more like in Toledo. That, yeah, um, that's what or I, like in I Detroit, could make it to but, Ohio or definitely make it to Detroit. Yeah. Just think about yeah, it. So that's a possibility. You got a couple. Yeah, people I mean, record stores is up. another thing too. I was talking to Jay Reason since I was on the uh, Diablo's Den podcast with him and uh, Isaac, and uh, he owns a record store in Connecticut. So he talked about maybe me coming up there and doing a book signing. So I might do that and then couple it with a, a signing at a lounge in Connecticut. So record stores is another possibility. So lots to do, and uh, my plan is a multi-year plan, right? So it's like. I don't need to do it all in the first year the book comes out. Like over right. the, the next two, three years, I'm just gonna be like building up this these connections, this audience, and just really enjoying having fun with it and just trying to connect with people. I mean, the whole impact is the main motivation here more than anything else. So like, as far as I'm concerned, like I've already like, you know, uh, begun to accomplish what I said about to do, which is to get it out into the world and to start making some impact. I mean, people have read the book and apparently it's resonating with, with the people that have. So I'm just trying to reach more people. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's a good read. And it's something that, like, 
you can you don't have to invest all of your time into it like you can read a few chapters set it down if you're reading another book pick that up and then kind of bounce back and forth to it like it's not like you have to dive into the whole thing all at once that's the idea it was meant to be like snackable you know read a chapter or two here and there still get something out of each standalone chapter but it also works end to end that's exactly how i i tried to write it for sure what i got out of it personally was patience like gotta have patience i'm a person that has not had a lot of patience but knowing that this book took you seven years you know it's a inspiration or it's promising that i you know i can still get shit done and it's not going to happen tomorrow or the next day but to have like you said multi-year plans the way to go yeah multi-year plans just like meaningful contributions on a regular basis compounds over time mm-hmm. like it's not always going to be exciting even when it's something you're passionate about it's not always going to be exciting like you, know, you could sit down to do a podcast one night and be really really tired you know you love it you know you'll feel good afterwards because you might not always feel like it in the moment but like committing to doing it enough where it doesn't wear you out or compromise your day job or whatever but just consistently returning to it it just compounds over time and that's the idea right like it's yeah you know, it's the old cliche that like most overnight successes took decades to make right business right. like, uh, thing you know what i mean yep. it's about consistently doing work over time regardless of how you feel knowing that when you do it you're going to feel better afterwards you're always going to feel like you're moving towards a larger goal and it's the old like like rich roll says you know it's like mood follows actions so just commit to like manageable actions over time yeah it's definitely inspiring as far like uh, we do the podcast and we're always trying to figure out ways to get it out there more and like to have the encouragement from people that is like this isn't going to happen right away you might have uh you know uh, a high point a low point another high point and you know it's, it's volatile it'll go back and forth and same with the record store like this week has been a slow slow week but people return back to school and parents got shit going on and whatever so i get it but you know that's uh when you're an entrepreneur or doing things for yourself, creating or whatever, it's a constant up and down. It is. It is. And it's like, if you can always return to the mindset of like, hey, I want results, but why I really got into this was because I enjoy the process or being engaged in this activity, or I, I want to make some sort of impact and any sort of evidence of that, even if small, uh, with any sort of reasonable frequency is, is exciting to me. Then like, if you return to that ethos, I found that that keeps you going and then results vacillate over time. But like, if you do it because you're just like, I just love that I get to do this, or I've created a, a mechanism for me to be involved with this. And then, and then I think that becomes more sustainable. It just becomes like a lifestyle versus like some goal, you know, so right. it's not really like there's an end to it. It's just something you do like working out, like you're always going to work out. You're always going to have podcasts or like you're always going to write, or you're always going to do whatever it is. It's just make it part of a lifestyle thing and not like some goal that if you don't get to X by certain date, it failed. You know, you got to get that out of your head. Yeah. Or if you're not a, an overnight billionaire viral sensation or, you know, whatever the case is. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we might shit. There's been weeks we only got like 10 people listening or whatever, but you know, fuck, I do it for them. 10 people. I don't care. We do it for us. Yeah. We do it for us. Honestly. Like I just want to talk to you. And if some people yeah, want to listen, I mean, that, fucking cool. You right. know? It's just like, and that's it, right? Like that's being in it for it, you know, in it for like the value of doing it, regardless of, you know, the, the scalable value to other people. You want that to happen. That can be a natural byproduct, but if you're in it for it, just keep being in it. Yes, sir. 
Yeah, and working out's a good analogy because uh, well, like once yeah. that once that becomes habit, that becomes like uh, like I didn't work out today because I felt kind of shitty this morning and my days felt off all day. Yeah, and it's like for me, like building on that analogy, like if I don't work out for like more, like if I go more than two days without working out, I know I'm going to feel awful all around, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, every way. Yeah. And now it's like stuff I do with failure rules fills me up so much that like if I go a week and I didn't have a podcast to do that week or there wasn't some meaningful momentum in some other aspect of promoting failure rules, like I don't feel good about things. So it's like I'm always returning to it, you know? always returning to it. It doesn't have to be a lot of time even like it might be like, it might be like three to four hours a week and not even, you know, but it's like, I always have to like feel like there's a meaningful momentum movement or just reasonable movement, you know, and it's, it's almost, it's the process that is fulfilling even more than the results. Results are great too, but like they're, they kind of fade, but consistent engagement with the process is like fulfilling ongoing. Yeah. And the fact that you get to do this for your living is, I mean, that, in a way keeps you going too because even a bad day at the store here i'm like well i could be working in a warehouse somewhere so yeah yeah just uh contrasting it with what you know you're you don't want to do or you're not meant to do it's 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 a big um you know motivator yeah well um the book we're not through yet but so far it's great um i want to thank you one for taking the time to jump on here and sit and talk with us and bullshit about music and the book and whatnot but do you have anything that you want to say like if you want to give away your uh, social tags and all that and anything you want to have to say about the book itself yeah sure yeah i would say you know listeners can find me on instagram at andrew thorpe king no e in the end of thorpe same for my website andrew thorpe king no e in the end of thorpe find the book anywhere books are sold online Kick-Ass Audiobook, too, uh, was um, narrated by Jay Asang, who was an actor on um, the show Twin Peaks on Showtime. He also uh, was part of the uh, – he did the video production for uh, Machine Gun Blues by Social Distortion. He gives a really urgent cadence to the, to the reading, really does justice to the text. But, yeah, look me up uh, online, Instagram, my website, got a YouTube channel, too. And um, also there's a soundtrack on um, Spotify and Apple Music, a companion soundtrack to the book, the actual songs I've listened to either while writing the book or songs that uh, really inspired me or helped me get through the hard times that I talk about in the book. So soundtrack's got everything from terror to blood for blood to Chromax, Hapery, Madball, H2O, Coffin Cats, Black Sounds Flag, like all our kinds of fucking pa- our playlists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, we'll share that with this because um, we usually – do a playlist with each episode, but since you already have one, we'll just uh, send people that way. Yeah, yeah, man, the, look it up on Spotify or Apple. Failure rules soundtrack playlist. Yeah, your social links will all be hyperlinked in the episode description and like on our Instagram, and then it'll be on the record store Instagram and my own and Jeremy's, etc. I have one awesome. more question too that we ask everybody. Awesome. And oh since, shit! Good call. I almost, since, for, I almost yeah, forgot. And since you have a soundtrack. What are a, like a musician or a style of music that you listen to that somebody looking at you wouldn't expect you to listen to or a band that you don't want anybody to know that you listen to? <laughs> well, then he's not going to tell you. Well, he has to. <laughs> like you got um, a Kenny G fetish or something. All right, dude. So I'm going to, this is a, like a dirty secret. Like, yep. I, I can guess I'm a Jelly Roll fan. I like the Jelly oh, Roll. I'm just going to say. Damn. Really? Kind of like. That's yeah, awesome. See, I, I'm, you know, 
Hey, to be honest. You like what you that, like. That would be my guilty pleasure. And then something that you wouldn't think I'd listen to is, you know, I'm not like a huge jazz fan, but I love me some Charlie Parker. Oh, you know, fuck yeah. Especially yeah. when I'm yeah. cigar at the end of the evening, so. Yeah, we I'd both listen to that. Other than that, stuff that might be more predictable, but not punk, like. We dip our toes in yeah. jazz as well. Yeah, jazz yeah. we're big into. I mean, like, pretty much everything except polka and like pop country and stuff like that um but yeah yeah that, yeah yeah there's yeah. too many conflicting sounds i just can't do it yeah although i will also say that i, I do i do appreciate not pop country but like some of this more authentic shit coming out like oh yeah dude Brian stuff is actually good yeah i've uh read and heard some of his stuff actually but it's yeah. it's nice to see like somebody doing something that's not just bubblegum pop even if it's not my exactly. thing, like Jelly Roll's not my thing, but I've read some of his lyrics and stuff, and it's like real life shit. So oh, he's a funny I can, motherfucker. I can in appreciate interviews. that. Yeah, it's authenticity, right? And it's it's originality. Same with like Zach Bryan, which is more, more like to me, I view it more as like Americana, you know, but very authentic. There's no like fucking formulaic, like bubblegum, like country catchphrase shit. Like it's just authentic, poetic. Americana yeah. type stuff, and so I can see why he's as popular as he is. And I think the music's pretty good. Oh man, he's huge, fucking literally yeah. and figuratively. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah. Anyways, man, uh, thank you again. Yeah, it was nice talking to you, man, and meeting you. Thank you for the inspiration. You too, guys. Have a great night, man. Yeah, keep it up, man. Keep it up. Appreciate it, man. Peace out. See you guys. See you later. <laughs>